Today's sponsor of Happy Say Confused is Loot Crate. For less than $20 a month, Loot Crate gives the geek in you a special treat each and every month. Loot Crate is a subscription box service with over $40 worth of geek, gamer, and pop culture gear, collectibles, apparel, comics, and more delivered to your mailbox each and every month. This month's theme is time. And quite appropriately, of course, they're celebrating the 30th anniversary of Back to the Future in the month and year, of course, when Marty McFly travels to in Back to the Future Part 2, but you knew that, like I know that. And they also are celebrating the timeless appeal of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and of course, the timey-wimey charm of Doctor Who. So you guys have until the 19th at 9pm Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate, and when the cutoff happens, that's it, it's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash happy and enter the code happy to save $3 for new subscriptions today. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm Josh Horowitz, and welcome to my weekly podcast where I talk to extremely talented, charming, and thrilling people like this week's guest, Guillermo del Toro. Really excited about this one. He is one of our greatest living filmmakers. I would say he's one of our best dead filmmakers, too, if you were like just looking at all filmmakers, living and dead. What do you guys think, Joel, Sammy? I don't think he's dead. No, I know yeah. he's not dead. I'm just saying, my, I guess my point is I don't want to qualify it. literally can't believe you think he's dead. No, come closer to the mic. <laughs> Joel's sick, and we're sharing a mic, so I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, you're, you're not in a good situation. Uh, welcome back to the op- the intro to the podcast, uh, Sammy and Joel. You were such a hit last week that by popular demand, i.e. the Heller family, <laughs> you are back this week. <laughs> Shout out to Neil Heller. Oh, God. <laughs> um... Yeah, we had a good time last week talking about Mr. Uh, ben Schwartz yeah. uh, starring in The Walk. People are loving The Walk. Yeah. And um, and now we're here to talk about Guillermo and a lot, of, a lot of exciting things going on. First, Guillermo, we should mention, is promoting uh, a fantastic new film. I'm in love with this movie called Crimson Peak. Stars all of, uh, all of our favorite people, yeah, right? Your boyfriend. Don't perpetuate this. <laughs> your so, your you're, favorite you're, person in the world. You're playing into the fan base out there that likes to no. imagine that, that Tom and I have some kind of strange love affair that's not the term i'm an appreciator of his work he's an appreciator of mine that's simply all it is <laughs> oh. um tom hiddleston jessica chastain mia vashikowska charlie hunnam uh it is a, a truly uh great film i can't wait to see the film again what are you mouthing sam i love charlie hunnam oh god and mia vashikowska yeah i'd like say vashikowska vashikowski Ooh, uh, you mispronounced it there, but no, but, that's how her <laughs> true fan. That's what her fans are called. Oh, the Vashikowskis. The Vashikowskis. <laughs> that our, our team name is. Uh, the movie comes out October sixteenth. Um, I am definitely going to see it again and again because it's um, a really great piece of work. I think it's one of my favorite of Guillermo's. He says it's one of his. Uh, you'll hear in the podcast. He says it's one of his top three of his own work. Just being self-analytical, he says. Uh, I think Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone in this one. So that should tell you all you need to know. As if um, that film needs to be sold to you. And if it does, I don't trust your opinion anyway. Joel? I, I agree with that, those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Zero numbers were said. Um, no, one, two, and three. What else is worth talking about this week? Well, let's see. As Wait, we, but, uh, yeah, I want to know. Yeah, I, know yeah. <laughs> I know you have a relationship with Guillermo. Yes. 
Did he invite you back to the man cave? Oh, that's an excellent question. So here's the here's the thing. Okay, so this is a running thing, and I hope Guillermo, I hope you're listening to this. I know you're not, but I hope you're listening to this. I have interviewed Guillermo del Toro ever since I came to MTV, which is near nine years ago now. And he is one of the nicest human beings on the planet. He like gives you these giant hugs, and he's just like a just a huge, great spirit. And he I've probably interviewed him like 30 times, and I would say 27 of those times includes a um, an invitation to his so-called man cave, as he as he puts it. So he has, um, I think he has a home. I know he has a home. He lives somewhere, but he also has like... <laughs> In our hearts, yeah. <laughs> but he also has something he calls the man cave, which from all accounts is amazing, filled with memorabilia, stuff from his own films, stuff from stuff that he admires, and... I truly think it's a psychological torture that he's doing to me because every time I see him, he says, when are you coming to the man cave, Josh? And I always say, anytime, to which a normal human being would say, okay, here's my number, come by or something. Well, maybe maybe no. you should say, how do I get there? No, it's that's part of it. Josh has to figure out how to get there. And it's like... Well, I haven't. It's taken no, nine years. I still haven't. It's like if you go back and watch all 30 of the interviews, there's a clue in each one <laughs> could be. as to how to get to the man cave. And it's like all there and you're just too dumb to see. <laughs> it could very well be because at this point now it's like, it's it's just like a drinking game to see how soon into the conversation he invites me to the man Joel cave. Joel and I have been there. No, yeah. don't oh, yeah. That's not three, funny. He shows the devil's backbone. We watch Pan's <laughs> Labyrinth. He actually has the guy Pacific with the no rim. eyes in his man cave. It was, Joel, I feel like that was the hardest we ever laughed was the night we hung out with GDT in yeah. the man cave. Yeah. And, like, oh my God, do you remember what he said about Josh? So, okay, okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, but I do, I do have a follow-up question. Yeah. Who's a better hugger, GDT or Shailene Woodley? Ooh. Oh, those are two, two master huggers. That's a really good question. Well, GDT's a bigger dude, so he's there's more. Makes you feel small. Yeah, so it's like if you want to be the little <laughs> spoon. Safe. Yeah, if you want to feel safe and yeah. little spoon, like that. That's your that's your hug. If you want, you know, more of a, a feminine sort of kind of sweet hug, go Shailene. They're both great. Okay. You have to pick. I didn't, I didn't, mean, to, I didn't mean to ask such a controversial question. I apologize. Um, also worth mentioning, we're very proud of the latest After Hours we put up just as we taped this um, just the other day. Um, with, it's called Camp Mockingjay with Jennifer Lawrence and Josh Hutcherson and Liam Hemsworth. If you haven't checked it out, uh, please do. It's on the MTV News YouTube page. Um, gotten a lot of pickup. We're very thrilled with it. You get to see uh, Jennifer Lawrence stuff Ted marshmallows in her mouth, and that's something worth everyone's time, I would say. That's, speak for yourself. Uh, can I just I mean. say a quick follow-up? Yeah, please. When I was in um, college, I was dared to do an entire bag of jumbo marshmallows, and I fit. 16. What does that mean? Do an entire bag? Like, That's like fit, put it, fit it in my mouth, and <laughs> and I fit sixteen. You were the saddest sorority I, ever. <laughs> <laughs> it was like it was like on a Friday night. And we we're like, <laughs> let's go crazy, yeah. guys. And I just want to say that like she did ten, and that's great. I don't. That's great, but I feel like everyone's acting like that's. Right, amazing, and it's not that. Imp- but you guys should watch it. Anyway. To be to be fair, uh, being in such close proximity to seeing what was happening, it wasn't like there was. It didn't seem like there was more room. Like she was truly she, gagging at the yeah, end. Yeah, but she had like a. There's a form to do it. Like you can like make the marshmallows smaller and right. then kind of. Stuff him into oh, like right. the like crevice. Dipping, dipping the hot dog in the water. You're saying, yeah, I'm like, like the Kobayashi. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I believe you. You could probably do. I would say 16 to 18. Absolutely. <laughs> Joel actually has 16 in his mouth right now during Joel, this introduction. Yeah. That's my stasis. Yeah. 
because <laughs> you never know when you're hungry. You pull it out. It's a snack. I like feel Joel's illness like wafting towards Is it a cold? Is it, is it, I do sound a little congested. I'm okay. Okay. It started in his throat. Ugh. I'm going to move to congestion. So it's now in his feet. in my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Green. It's disgusting. Uh, what else is worth mentioning? Oh, we just watched, um, before we start taping this, a cut of uh, a new After Hours that's going up in a couple days as you hear this. Um, it's uh, it's something with Hugh Jackman, and it's really funny, and I think everyone's going to enjoy it. It's tied into his new film, Pan, uh, which comes out uh, this Friday, and uh, look out for that. It's a good one, too. Also, there's some other good stuff. Tom Hiddleston did a fun bit with us. That's going to be yep, up soon. Tom Hiddleston again. Oh, stop it. <laughs> Proof is in the pudding. Um, what else to tell you guys? That's about it. I don't know. What else? What are you guys excited about? What's what's the next big movie you're excited about? We're in fall movie season. Um, um, you got nothing? I don't know. I feel like there's a new Hunger Games movie coming yeah. out. Jesus. Have, you, have you heard of it? Mockingjay Part 2, Lizard People. That's, that's the <laughs> subtitle? Yeah. The Lizard have People? Have you seen uh, Mockingjay Part 2? No, no, not that cool yet. They haven't screened it yet? They haven't screened it yet. Mm. Soon, hopefully. I feel like he's lying. No, no, I would tell you. I just wouldn't be able to tell you anything about it. I'm excited. I'm about to see Steve Jobs this weekend as we oh, tape this. Oh, yeah. I saw a preview for that last night. I went to the movies. What did you see? Sicario. Oh, good, right? It was, like, very good. Super tense. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I wanted to see The Intern. <laughs> Very so, similar. So it's a good I'm double like feature. pouting about it the whole time having right. to go see Sicario. Right. And then I was like, Felt very cultured after. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good good yeah. movie. I always love seeing Benicio del Toro in those like r- like rom com sweet, <laughs> you know, to get to see him be like the sweet sweetheart. Yeah, he the is silly guy. He is always like ten degrees of, of scary. Like he's even for Benicio, this is a scary role. I feel yeah. like he's intense. It's like says four words the but, whole time. But the four words are. Horrifying. Yeah, they make you pee in your pants. Uh, so go see Sicario. There's a lot of good stuff out there. This is a good there time. Is. A good time to be a big movie fan. So um, as I said, Crimson Peak coming at you October 16th. Check it out. And in the meanwhile, enjoy this conversation with Guillermo del Toro, in which I am not invited to the man cave. He didn't do it this time, so I guess it's over between us. You couldn't figure it out. You're really missing out. It's awesome. It's literally the fucking best. All right. Enjoy the conversation. The profanity was not needed, Sam. <laughs> I just got very excited. You're not welcome back. I gotta go. Uh, Mr. Del Toro Guillermo, buddy. Senor. It's always good to see you, man. Same here, man. But truly, um, I was telling you before, I'm a... Uh, Borderline obsessed with this one. I love it. I truly do. I am obsessed with it, and I love it too. It's one of my three favorites I've done. Yeah. So that's uh, which which are the three? Devil's Backbone. Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth. Depending on the week, they can switch, <laughs> and then Crimson Peak right out. See, I was going to say, like, when you finish a film, and this one, you had a while to kind of like tinker and get it right, right? <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. And tinker, I did. Did you really? Horribly, and to the point of. I honestly, uh, my post supervisor was keep him away. It's like, let it go, Guillermo. We, we did 12, 12 musical sessions on the score. 12 musical sessions. We redesigned the sound three times. I mixed it three times. I color corrected it about three times more than any other movie. Like, Pants was, next to this, Pants was the next one. Yeah. And I color corrected the cinematography on this movie three times more. Uh, I recut it, cut it, moved it, tried it, went crazy on the previews, tried things that were much longer, 
until I got it to where I like it, you know. Do, do you understand the instinct of, of you know, the Ridley Scott and the George Lucas's that tinker even beyond release? Are you, at this point, are you ready to let it go, or do you still, when you see it, do you still see anything? I, I, I saw it the other day, and there's one scene I would cut out, so no. uh, there you go. So, I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm happy to hear that you're, you're pleased with it, as you should be, because I, I'm curious, like, when a filmmaker completes a work that they've labored on for a while, do they see the flaws? Do they see, the, are they pr- like, are they psyched about it? You seem actually psyched about it, not sick of it, which is a good sign. Yeah, I think. Psyched. You know, there is. There was a moment uh, where I really was afraid for my sanity. Why? What was <laughs> happening? Because I kept, I kept, I kept coming back and saying, "I'm going to need to open." We were printing the final, the final reels, you know. And I would say to the post supervisor, "Have you printed reel five? No. Okay, we're going to open it again, and I'm going to take this line of dialogue out. Right? Really? I go, yeah. And, and, and to the point of uh, obsession, you know? It's funny. I mean, you, you, you begin the film, I believe literally the first line of dialogue is what goes surreal, right? Yes. And it, I, I feel like it's kind of, um, you know, without ruining stuff for the audience, it's, it's, it's disingenuous. It, to me, I don't think of it as a ghost story. I feel like it it, isn't. It's, it's a story that has some ghosts involved. It's exactly what she says to the publisher. It's not a ghost story. It's a, ghost, a story with a ghost in it. Yeah. And, and look, gothic romance in general is very important to understand. Gothic romance is not a horror film. Is, is atmospherically like a dark fairy tale with supernatural atmosphere and elements and scares, but it doesn't function as a horror film. And at the same time, gothic romance is not pure romance. Yeah. It, it, gothic romance was born out of the will to marry love and death. Yeah. And, and, and a nostalgic sense of loss. So it's a hugely romantic movie, but with a lot of darkness. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is like you've described yourself, and I think it's apt. Like you're not a cynical filmmaker. No, you're very much a romantic yeah. that happens to just also love darkness. And there's some yeah. horrific imagery in all your films, but yeah. it, it comes from a romantic place, which is an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. I get high on my own supply. <laughs> and I truly, truly use my product, and I and I, and I feel that uh, even even in something. When you approach an idea as insane as Pacific Rim, yeah. giant robots, giant monsters, I do it straight. I believe in giant robots. I believe in. I'm not being ironic or, or postmodern. Yeah. Same with gothic romance. I think uh, the movie has this heightened tone of melodrama, right. and I went went for broke for it. You know. Plus, you threw in Tom Hiddleston's rear end. Yeah. Well, he was very very eager to throw the rear end. <laughs> he suggested one day. How about I just drop trout <laughs> today? Can I be today? naked for the breakfast scene? No, Tom. We gotta wait for the love scene. Can I be naked in the waltz? No, Tom. Wait for what the. We have the scene. subplot, the subtext that I'm, I'm a nudist throughout the entire film. I, think, doesn't I, work. I think he was toning those buds. Right. Uh, yeah. He is a great romantic hero for this kind of a thing. Yeah. He fits and, this to a T. He does, and, and uh, look, I, I can tell you two or three ways to make Crimson Peak eminently more of a commercial ride that I don't take. You know, like you give the ghosts a moral or religious weight. They are evil, they're demonic, they're whatever. I, I refuse to do that. The ghosts are used in a really interesting way that relates to Devil's Backbone, actually, yeah. if people watch them. And, and the other thing is, instead of making the villains so hateful at the end that you want them to die, you create an empathy. And, you know, little by little, and the same was in Devil's Bag, when you give them their most humane moments as the movie advances, and it makes for a more moral gray area, sure. but I'm, I'm really happy with that. Are, are you a believer yourself in supernatural and ghosts? I have. I mean, I have experienced that, and I believe. Because, uh, and everybody in my family, most people have experienced that, you know. I don't know if it's in the water, but... <laughs> 
and Mexico is pretty more, <laughs> is more useful to encounter the, the strange and the supernatural. What's the one that sticks out? Is there one incident that you think of? Well, the one, the one that sticks out was when we were scouting the Hobbit in New Zealand. I, I always go, when I stay in hotels, I look for the haunted room. And in Waitomo, and you can do it yourselves if you go to, to Wellington and, and New Zealand, in Waitomo, there is a hotel, the Waitomo Hotel, and there is a room, I think it's 12C, mm. uh, where it's famously a haunted room. And, and it was closed, the hotel was closed for the season. It was eight of us. And the manager opened the hotel, really angry that we were making her open the hotel, gave us the keys and said, go. And I said, can I get the haunted room? And she said, oh, there you go. I go, I'm watching The Wire. I'm watching Omar and Stringer Bell, like doing a parlay, you know? Sure. Nothing haunting about it in my Mac, and all of a sudden, and it's in the movie in Crimson Peak, I hear a horrible murder in the bathroom. Horrible, a woman- Like screams, just like- A woman screaming, <laughs> like you have never heard those screams, huge pain. And then I get up, I look, I trace it to a vent in the wall. I listen and it's a vent that goes to the cellar of the building. I get really jittery, but I sit down ready to admit Stringer Bell into my life again. <laughs> and I hear a guy sobbing loudly with regret. And then I put the earphones and I watch the whole season. This is the only time the wire is like a respite. Is like it's yes, like this yes. is the nice place to go. <laughs> Whoever got killed, I oh, didn't care. It's a romantic comedy no, now because, because the room had a, the room had a huge window, a balcony, and I swore I was saying. I didn't want to go out into the corridors. I said, I don't know where the other seven people are. <laughs> and I'm not going to be running like Danny in the tricycle <laughs> looking for who is there. And I, I swore that if I lifted my eyes from the computer to the yeah. balcony, there was going to be somebody oh, knocking God. slowly in the window. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And the next day you left the Hobbit project. This was an omen. <laughs> <laughs> no, the next, I didn't sleep. And the next day we, we continued scouting up north. <laughs> You mentioned uh, sounds, and uh, I mean, like the sound design in this film is impeccable too. I kept yeah. thinking of like the all those strange noises in a house that creep yeah. you out, and everybody has this growing up or to this day. What what are the banal, ordinary sounds that get under your skin? Are there any? Are there like sounds that kind of creep you out just for? Well, there's uh, believe it or not, uh, one of the ghosts. Uh, I, what we did is we grabbed the cooing of a baby. And it is very creepy to put it on top of a skeletal figure, right. for example. The buzzing of a fly freaks me out for some reason. <laughs> it's in the movie. And then there is a, a low frequency that, is, uh, that affects us as mammals. I think it's a frequency that we used to sense as earthquakes or volcanoes. So it's ingrained in our DNA to react with fear to that low frequency, so yeah. that freaks me out too. So since we have some time, I want to go, go back a little bit and, and jump around to the career. We've talked many times over the years, but this is kind of like, this is, this is your life, Guillermo del Toro. I want to go back to the beginning. Okay, so like, who was the biggest influence on your life, like growing up in terms of like pop culture? Who did you learn your taste? Who, who did you inherit some tastes from or some proclivities towards? Well, look, I studied very carefully Hitchcock. I, you cannot see it in my work, but I studied Hitchcock a lot. I, I liked that he was Catholic and repressed and fat, but also I loved that he really could verbalize what he was doing and it didn't get in the way of the work of art. I loved that. I liked, I liked that he seemed to be a reflexive artist that could articulate what he was doing. Uh, huge influence George Miller, for example, strangely yeah. enough. I mean, I still emotionally, my favorite movie of all times is either Frankenstein or The Road Warrior. 
And if the world was burning, I would probably grab the wrong one. You know, it, it, As a how-to manual to survive the apocalypse? Well, or I remember the same weekend, I saw the World Warrior and Blade Runner. And I came out of both instances transformed. Yeah. And, and in the, I was in Vegas. And in the World Warrior, I came out and I laid next to the pavement to see the grain of the pavement. I mean, I think that movie transformed a lot of people of my generation. Yeah. Same with Blade Runner, man. And when, when I think I, I saw you last, we actually, I think we mentioned Fury Road. I think we were both obsessed yes. with what George was able to do on that one. At that age. That's what, oh, that's what I was going to say. It's like, you know, in recent years, you've seen people like Scorsese and yeah. you've seen George Miller. Oh, Wolf of Wall Street. Who are, or, or, you know, they're directing like they're 25-year-olds that yes. have never directed yes. before. Yes. Is that, I mean, is that something that, that you worry about? Like, how do you, how do you like steer yourself towards that as I, opposed to running out of I ideas? Have, I have the great advantage that I was directing like I was 70 when I was 28. <laughs> You're going to reverse. You're Benjamin buttoning. Benjamin buttoning. Yeah, yeah. I I think that is beautiful because there are uh, when you have people that are in love with the craft and you sense that these are people. George Miller is a fully undomesticated animal. It's a tiger that has not known a cage. Right. You know, and I love Mad Max was the stories about schedule and units and. He just went for no, it. It felt like, like Warner Brothers just gave him like $150 million, sent yeah, him to Namibia, yeah, and he just yeah. brought back this amazing piece of amazing art. Amazing piece of art. I mean, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's almost Max de Soleil, you know, right. like balletic and acrobatic. And, you know? Totally. Yeah. So uh, when you're growing up, my math also, like you mentioned Blade Runner and Road Warrior, Star Wars came out probably when you were like yeah. 12 or 13 yeah. or something. Does that naturally blow the brain off of uh, oh, Guillermo yeah. del Toro? Well, what happened is I came out of, I went to the first showing, I think, it was 10 a.m. and I went around the block and I went to the second showing and I went around the block and I went, <laughs> I went to every showing that day, consecutive, and because it was when nobody still, it was not people were not saying you gotta see it. Right. The world was much slower before the summer movies. Right. And I watched it all day long, and I, and I was dying to get a toy. It was like <laughs> surgically implanted in me to want toys. Yeah. <laughs> And, and it's because George, George did, for the first time in an efficient way, a future that felt used. Like even Kubrick with 2001, which is impeccable and perfect, yeah. it's a beautiful movie, but everything is, is new. Yeah. Oil drips are not there, and I think George broke that mold, followed almost immediately by Alien, Ridley Scott, yep. who, who made it truckers in space, you know, with yes. oil drips and bad repair jobs and steam coming out. I mean, I think that made uh, science fiction real, yeah. wearing it down. Before that, it was people in tutus, or uh, you know, speaking in strange tongues with shiny apparatus and lights. Right. This is the moment. It was lived in. It was, yeah, it was yeah, lived yeah. in. Yeah. I mean, you know, we talked how like you've been offered virtually every kind of comic book franchise at various yeah. points over the career. Is Star Wars a universe that like is too sacred in a way that you would want to play with? Have you talked to them you at know, all? I, I really, I feel strangely more and more inclined uh, lately uh, to go and do more strange stuff. Mm-hmm. Like do stuff that is a little more key. A little more quirky. I don't know. I, I, I when when I spoke to them, I spoke with John Knoll about it, and I said, if I ever do one, I would love to do Jabba the Hutt's 
uh, Scarface. Right. You know? <laughs> His ascension in the crime family. You totally. Know? But it's not. It's not a plan. It's not. I'm not announcing. <laughs> Please don't pick it up. It's, but it does uh, feel like yeah. Like I wouldn't pick you necessarily to do like episode nine. But yeah, I feel like you could rather like give monsters. you. Yeah, you should give your flavor to some side bizarre story. I, I just love monsters. Man. Yeah. And Java is uh, a basically my same shirt size. <laughs> and second, I love it, man. <laughs> Um, jumping around a bit, I, I refreshed. I watched Kronos last week for the first time in a long while. It still holds up. It's an amazing piece of work. When when that came and you got a lot of accolades off of that, yeah. I believe you were celebrated in Cannes for it. Yeah, was that we won the, the Critics Week? Yeah, I mean, was that a relief because it was like you've been building towards this? And what happens if it comes out and no one cares? <laughs> I tell you, I, I went to Kronos. I went to Kronos. I was twenty seven, twenty eight, and. Our promotional budget for Cannes was 10 posters and a roll of scotch tape. <laughs> and I said to, to my wife, you think 10 posters would be enough? She says, I think more than enough. <laughs> we come out of the plane. Ever the optimist. We were come out of the plane, and Arnold Schwarzenegger in the last section here is floating over the bay with a sort of shotgun. A giant billboards. And I go, I go restaurant to restaurant saying, can I glue my poster in your window? <laughs> yes or no? And I glue the posters. And then I say, how many movies are in Critics Week? And they were like a hundred and, and all of them were nominated for the prize. Yeah. And I said, all right, let's enjoy the song. <laughs> and then we win. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it, it changed my life. You know, two times I felt that moved. The other time was when we finished Kronos with a, we asked for a loan personally of a quarter of a million dollars on a 20-something-year-old. And my house was a guarantee, blah, blah, blah. And when we won a contest where the first prize was like a hundred and something, I stood there with the giant check, like Miss Universe, <laughs> crying and saying, thank you, thank you. And those are, I mean, these are the beginnings, and the beginnings are very delicate. Yeah. I think it never stops being delicate, but the first and second movie are the hardest. Yeah. If the first one's good, then everybody says, let's see what he does on the second one. Mercifully for me, I did Mimic. So that you went through it. Between those two, you went like, the spectrum. That's just like, there you go, guys. So, but, but, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, the second one is difficult. And clearly, and it was for you. I mean, there was a lot going on. I mean, in your personal life, too, that was around yeah, the time when your dad was... My dad was taken for 72 days. An insane yeah, story. Yeah. So, when did you know that that project was going to hell? That mimic? We, yeah. Oh, you know, I got I got the sense of it uh, one day when when I got into a conference call. Uh, no, we were in a conference table, and uh, Michael Phillips, one of the producers, for the longest time they were bark beetles that that fed on the on the trees of Central Park and mm -hmm. they propagated a disease through the air, blah blah. And all of a sudden, Michael Phillips says, "What if we make them cockroaches?" And I just felt this is the end. That's it. And then everybody said, that's a great idea, New York. And I said, listen, I said this. I really did. I said, from now on, no matter what we do, we're going to be the giant roach movie. Oh, no, 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 are you wrong? This is bad. And what did we, what were we? <laughs> the giant roach movie. Would you ever work with the Weinsteins again, or is that too much? You know, I, we have a friendship. I mean, yeah. we get along. We see each other. Is you know I never say never, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I part of me loves Bob and I love Harvey. Yeah, I really get along with Harvey. Since then, do you feel like you've? It seems to me, looking at what you've produced since then, you really haven't made any compromises. Like, do you no. do you ever feel like you have had to make a compromise artistically? 
on never, any of your projects? Never again, never again. Every movie, if you like it or hate it, is my fault. Yeah. You know, I think that from then on I've been free. Hey guys, time to take a break from Happy Sack Confused to tell you about our sponsor today, Loot Crate. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? I know I would. All three. Check, check, and check. Well, then, Loot Crate is the subscription box for you. Loot Crate is a subscription box service with over $40 worth of geek, gamer, and pop culture gear, collectibles, apparel, comics, and more delivered to your mailbox every single month. Make sure to head to LootCrate.com happy and enter the code happy to save $3 on any new subscription. Every month, guys, is a different theme. All are inspired by classic movies and video games, and they pull from all the big pop culture franchises. Previous crates have included items from Star Wars and Marvel and Walking Dead, Legend of Zelda, and all the other stuff that you love. This month's theme is time, and quite appropriately, they are celebrating the 30th anniversary of Back to the Future in the month and year Marty McFly travels in, to and Back to the Future 2, of course, but you knew that. Uh, the timeless appeal also of um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is celebrated, and the timey-wimey charm of Doctor Who. So basically, if you haven't gotten it already, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present each and every month. And did I mention that they ship to over 13 different countries too? You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate, and then the cutoff happens, and that's it. It's over. So go to LootCrate.com happy and enter the code HAPPY to save $3 on your new subscription today. Did, uh, did you, I mean, you, you referenced, and I don't want to go into externally exploit what was a personal, you know, hardship for your entire family, but your, the incident with your dad. Is that something that colors, though, your work, you think, in any way? Does it, I know you've never, you've decided never to kind of like do a story exactly, about no. it in any way, but do you feel like it informs any of your work in any way? I don't know how. I mean, it probably does. I mean, look, the fact is I can explain my movies to a certain degree, but that's my reading. The movies have or must have another reading yeah. that somebody else needs to do if they're interested. I'm not, you know, I, I, when people say, oh, you know, you classify them this way and maybe it's a simplistic way or not, but that's how I articulate them. Yeah. They must have a second reading. I mean, there is a, an extreme preoccupation with death, of course, but I, I'm not sure it permeated. It made me a better person, that's for sure. How so? What? Just appreciating? Well, it's weird because uh, until my dad was kidnapped, I had his shadow over me in a big way. Like I was his son. He was a very famous man. Yeah. He was a big man. And, and then when he came out, I, I was a man and he was a man. Just another guy. Yeah. And, and I loved him, but he was not this uh, childhood giant. Sure. It was a guy that, that I loved, you know, so it was very different. What, what about having kids? Does that change? I mean, certainly your are Everything. Well, it certainly doesn't feel like your films have softened in any way. No, but, but I, actually, I, actually, uh, I actually became incredibly sensitive to, to the, the uh, female protagonists. To, to actors, to actresses, to what they do in my films. If I didn't have my kids, I wouldn't have been able to do Pan's Labyrinth. I wouldn't have been able to do uh, Crimson Peak, which is incredibly female-centric, sure. you know? And, and I'm very aware of the, of the power of, uh, 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 of my, my wife, my daughters. Is just their power is so strong. And I, I, always, I, I always wonder how can any artist represent women 
in any other way but strong because everybody around me, my mother, uh, everybody, all the women I know are, are strong and powerful and full of a, a core that we lack. Yeah, yeah. You got, you've got two great performances in this one, Mia and, and Jessica. I know it's a great acting stretch for her because in, in real life she's always smiling and in this film I don't think she smiles once. <laughs> yeah, and, and look, I, I made it very clear to both of them, you're going to represent two sides of love. Mm -hmm. And two sides of love, not not towards a man, just two sides of an understanding love, and 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 they need to be fully convinced of that each of them is right. Sure. Like each of them needed to be the protagonist in their in her own mind. You know. We talk about not making compromises because uh, I think of Hellboy, where you really stood fast with your your soulmate, yeah. Mr. Ron. Perlman. Another eight years. <laughs> and and he and he was someone that was not necessarily the studio's pick, to say the least. When I used to say I used to say Ron Perlman, they say the owner of Revlon, <laughs> no, no, the actor, the guy. Well, okay, that would bark it in the, in the yeah. thing too. It'll be yeah. perfect. Yeah. No, it was, it was but they weren't like weird. Vin Diesel, right? Did they ever? Did you ever Nicholas consider Cage, it? Vin like, Diesel, uh, The Rock. You know? Did they make a compelling? for any of those? Did you were you tempted at all? No, no. I mean, I, I, I really, I just said, look, uh, I, I would tell Ron, I would tell Ron, I'm going to take the meeting, but don't worry. Mm -hmm. And then I would take the meeting and say, I, I'd rather go with Ron. And then every time they would come back, I had a meeting with a super powerful uh, production produ producer, and he said, your movie's green lit, but it's not going to be Ron Perlman. That's all I'm asking. Same script. And I said, this is not my movie. I mean, and I always had this certainty after Mimic. See, Mimic did that for me. Mimic taught me the most powerful word in the English language. No. no. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and, and the thing is, at the end of the day, your name is on the movie, you're responsible. You can tell stories or you can, I can tell you, oh, that needs you. If you didn't bail, if you, did, if, you, if you stayed and your name is on it, don't tell me, oh, anyway, sure. you, are the, you own the crap. <laughs> <laughs> the last couple of years at Comic-Con, you've, you've uh, pulled the audience on Hellboy. Ron's been actively <laughs> trying to get yeah, this going lately. Yeah. Has the studio expressed any interest? Is it all from you guys? Like, is there any... The last serious conversation I had about a Hellboy 3 was with Ron Perlman at a coffee bean in Ventura. <laughs> it doesn't get any more official than that. That's how movies are green. That's life. practically green. <laughs> so, you know, it was Ron with his <laughs> vanilla frappuccino about, what, four weeks ago? Right. I mean, I adore that guy, man. I mean, he really is my brother, and I would love to do it. I would love to do Hellboy 3. And I, I frankly, honestly, I, uh, part of me is maybe not savvy enough, but I understand why they do it, why, because the two Hellboys made a lot of money on DVD and Blu-ray. Right. They made enough money theatrically, but the DVD and Blu-ray markets are gone. Yeah. Uh, but I honestly think I may be deluded that there is a, the character has grown into a, a, an audience that is that really wants it. Well, and also the international markets have exploded, and I feel like yeah. that's a character that transcends can, can transcend. I, I mean, I, I would do it in a second, but no, no one's no one's knocking. And Ron <laughs> okay. is on this uh, almost uh, it's a crusade. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't get in his way. I don't. I, I, I tell you, I'll do anything for that guy, man. In the course of my being at MTV, it kind of coincided with what was probably a frustrating period of time for you. I mean, we were talking a lot during yeah. the development of the Hobbit. 
it, et cetera. And, Two years, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's that like... Mountains of Matter right after. And yeah. so the, that, there will always, for good or for bad, there will always be that, what, five or six year gap in your directing resume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, how were you able to reconcile that? Because that must have been the greatest source of frustration for you. It feels at times like you, you've been cursed as, <laughs> as yeah, a filmmaker yeah. in order, well, the, more the, than others. The, real, the reality is that my projects had reported and announced yeah. more than others. Like I can, I can tell you the three movies that Alfonso tried and didn't do in his six years between Children of Man and Gravity. You know, he was going to do one called A Man and His Shoe, right. A Boy and His Shoe, and another one that was about a bunch of teenagers and blah, blah, blah. And they don't get reported. For some reason, I get reported, <laughs> I get announced, and then I, I have to own the fact that they happen or not happen. But yeah. it happens to everyone. I mean, the gap exists uh, there, but I kind of felt good about the gap because I co-wrote three novels, produced three films, sure. produced two animated films. I was not exactly, no, exactly. sitting on my laurels and co-wrote uh, the trilogy, you know, and, and, and I, I designed uh, my two Hobbit movies completely, you know, as much as I could, and I left all that, all that there, but I, I actually, the thing that hurts for me is Mountains of Madness. Yeah. That one hurts because that's a, that's a horror movie. Like Crimson Peak is not a horror sure. movie. Now, Mountains of Madness is a horror movie. It's, it's, it was going to be a scary movie and a beautiful movie. And infamously, you were like a week or two away with like Tom Cruise attached to all was, of it. I was yeah. with Jim Cameron producing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, that in the 80s with Karolko in a second, you know? <laughs> so any movement lately on Mountains of Madness? Is, there, nah, is that I, one of those things? Again, like, like the coffee bean, I had, uh, <laughs> okay. I had dinner with Jim, and he said, what are we going to do about it? Right. And, you know, Don Murphy and Susan Montford, always great allies, always keep it alive. And, yeah. You know, what I say is, let's do it when it's absolutely sure, because I honestly, I don't want to be dramatic, but it hurt a lot. Yeah. And I don't know if I could be disappointed on that project again. What, what, what about the feelings for The Hobbit at this point? Have you ever, have you sat down and watched the, the three? No, no, I haven't. And, and, and Peter and I are in a great uh, relationship. We, are, we have a very clean uh, relationship and communication. We're very friendly. And I think it's a sign of respect for me. It's, it's almost like, uh, you know, watching footage of your ex-wife on the beach. You know, exactly why do you want to watch? If it's good, right. it's bad. If it's worse, it's worse. It's, sure. I mean, you, and there's no no upside to it. And I respect and love his uh, work as a filmmaker. And, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather be happy that I was part of it. Sure. So Pacific Rim, which was the, the largest in terms of scale of a mm-hmm. film that you've done, was it at all difficult to kind of retain kind of like your creativity, your control over that no. as the scale exponentially grew? Nope. That movie is was fully in my control. No, it feels totally, it, it doesn't really, feel compromised really, in any I, way. I, I hate to not have great anecdotes, but that movie, if you hate it or love it, I, I, I did it. And, and it was great. It was really hard to, to gauge the marketing of that movie because uh, I always felt that the robots were pushed to the front and the monsters were not, they were almost kept like a secret. Sure. You know, and I think the whole concept what attracted me was monsters and robots. That's what made my 11-year-old mental light bulb go up. Right. And and you know, I'll never, I'll never, uh, I'll never know uh, exactly if it could have been different. Uh, it was, you know, a lot was made about the tracking, and tracking doesn't mean popularity; it means people knowing about it. Yep. We tested incredibly high. We got a great cinema score meaning audiences were connecting, but no one knew. 
I mean, when the movie was opening, we were below Grown Ups 2 in terms of awareness. Right. Now it's awareness, and that's, that's, that's a thing that worries me because I would have loved for people to know more about it. Well, it's a, it's a crazy world when, like, what a film grosses, like, what, around 400 globally. And yeah. it's a gray area whether you get the green light or not for a sequel. Yeah, 411 four, four, four uh, is pretty good for... Seems uh, nice. Uh, it's, Seems still, it's still my, my highest grossing movie, you know? And a, an original property. I mean, that's yeah. an achievement. And, and, and uh, you know, Legendary always... Uh, you know, the reason why they started uh, Pacific Rim 2 is they showed me, look, we've made more money than... This, this, and this huge franchise's first movie. Sure. The fact is, what we need to do on the second one is you need to use everything we learned and make it for as tight a budget as you can and, and go for it, you know? So, as we sit here today, I know in the last couple of days it's been talked about whether this is a Go project or not or it's on, on the shelf. It's, it's, certainly, it's certainly not my next movie. It's definitely not. No, because uh, with the push, you push, you push the release date, so I feel compelled to go and do something small and weird. <laughs> you know, and then because I need I need uh, like a, a breather and a and a little, little uh, more a madness in my life. Yeah. <laughs> but but in three weeks we are delivering a budget and a schedule. Yeah, uh, and a, and a new draft of the screenplay, and then the studio knows how much it costs, what is it about. And then they'll decide if they go ahead or not. Is is the small weird one something specific? Because you had mentioned doing like a black and white thing that was. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've learned, and you know, I've I know, learned I know. it through the years. You want to make God laugh, tell him what your next movie sure. is. <laughs> you know. So, um, curious, just talking filmmakers. You, you talked about Hitchcock, you talked about George Miller. You've mentioned before, and every great filmmaker would mention him. Stanley Kubrick as an influence. Kubrick, Cameron, Buñuel, uh, Spielberg, uh, Polanski. Um, uh, Buster Keaton, mm-hmm. Chaplin. I mean, Who, who's the filmmaker that that's no longer with us that you wish you could bend the ear of a little bit? Who would you want to? Talk I would to? love to have met Hitchcock right? or Buñuel. Yeah, I mean, they they are really really people I find very interesting as as people. You know, what's what's your favorite Hitchcock film? Depends on which side of Hitchcock. Hitchcock yeah. The great action Hitchcock is either 39 Steps or North by Northwest. The great melodrama Hitchcock, I would say, is notorious. Mm-hmm. The great sort of uh, Americana Hitchcock that defines Hitchcock is Shadow of a Doubt. So. Without, yeah. without a doubt. <laughs> you know, uh, or Strangers in a Train. Sure. Uh, his uh, gothic romance, in a strange way, is not Rebecca, but Suspicion. Uh, and one of my favorite late uh, year films is Frenzy. And, and my favorite film growing up of Hitchcock was The Birds, or I Confess. So, I mean, I really... There's something for every mood. <laughs> there, it is, and, and Hitchcock is... Hitchcock is not a filmmaker. Hitchcock is cinema. Yeah. It's the whole of cinema in one single author. Do you, I mean, do you feel... It, it, it's, it's kind of fascinating to think, like, cinema is a very young art form still yeah. and, and, and evolving exponentially. And we've talked over the years about video games, and you and you are a proponent. You know, you've said before that this is an area where um, creativity is there really exploding. Be, yeah. There will be, yeah. I mean, what, what do you... Do you worry about the cinematic experience, about will it look the same in 50 years? Will, it, will people be going to theaters together and... Well, it's, it's like owning a horse stable and being worried about automobiles. <laughs> I mean, progress is progress, isn't yeah. it? I mean, language evolves, art evolves, and, and it evolves with technology. So we are, we are facing a change, no doubt about it. Now, uh, I say 
if everybody keeps making great movies like Miller and Scorsese uh, and Alfonso and Alejandro, everybody, you know, I, I happen to think another one is Ridley Scott for me. Ridley Scott, I'm, I'm maybe in the minority, but I'm a huge fan of The Counselor, mm-hmm. and I've seen it probably 30 times. Oh, that's a crazy, amazing movie. <laughs> I know it, I know it perfectly and so forth. So, you know, just, I think everybody should keep making the best movies they can, and the art form will change. Now, one day, one day we will be all people that did operetta, <laughs> for sure. Because that's that's in the cards. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned um, Ridley. I just saw The Martian, which is like talking about a filmmaker pushing himself. I mean, f- from a visual standpoint, of course, it's it's amazing. It's got more humor than virtually any f- of his films ever. And yeah. to sort of see somebody pushing themselves in an area that maybe people don't think of themselves mm-hmm. uh, them for. Like, is there is there a genre that you appreciate as a fan that you don't necessarily feel like you have the tools to excel in? Oh yes, many. I mean, <laughs> of course. I mean, I would uh, musical, some musical. I would. Yeah. I mean, but but uh, let, can I make a parenthesis there? Because uh, another movie of him that I admire enormously is Prometheus. Yeah. And in the same way that I battle very much to say Crimson Peak is not horror, it's gothic romance, blah blah. Prometheus is one of the greatest adventure movies of the of the last. Two decades. Why do you think there's so much hate? Because I actually agree with you. I really enjoy Prometheus. It's an adventure movie. People in in terms of Alien, and they just—it was that. It's like it's like Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, Four Feathers, uh, Joseph Conrad scope adventure. It's an amazing. It happens to be in space. It happens to be in the universe of Alien. Yeah. But it's an adventure film of people breaking molds and going places that they shouldn't be. It's really fascinating, and I. I just think the guy is, is, is amazing and, and, and I think he's getting better and better and his filmography includes at least, what, 10 titles that you would kill oh, for, absolutely. 15 yeah, titles yeah. that you would kill for? What, for you, what, what, what stimulates your creativity? Like what's, 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 what helps you kind of get the engine going when it's not... Uh... A Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is it, is it going to Never see a movie? Fails. Is it going to see a movie? Does yeah. that get you going? Yeah, I think that when you go see a movie that, that is a staggering, uh, I just saw Revenant. Oh, did know, you? And it's a staggering. <laughs> it amazing? Yeah, and uh, when you see a movie, it, it, it sort of, that moves you to tears about the, the craft and about the medium and about the humanity. Yeah. It's so great, and I, I think that you... You, it's not that you hold to yourself to those standards, but you can certainly aspire to them. Sure. When, wherever you fall, uh, whether you are a chapter in cinema or a funny footnote, you always need to dream and be in love with the medium in that way. And mm-hmm. I think when you see a movie that beautiful, that powerful, you come out transformed. Do you have, a, uh, in terms of franchise filmmaking, a favorite franchise, one that does elevate on a... Uh, systematic basis, like do, do Bond films do it for you? Do any of like the comic book ones do it for you that that are, that are working on that you, level you know, of art? I, I like the Bonds. I do like the Bonds. I I happen to enjoy the Mission Impossibles a oh, lot. Great, you know, yeah. <laughs> I think that I think that it's they are becoming more and more the personality of Tom Cruise. You know, like they he has now he is that brand in a beautiful yeah beautiful way. You know. They're kind of like Bond of the '60s. They're, they're kind of like they're they are. They, they are, and they are uh, physically, and, and they're very muscular. They're very whimsical. Yeah, you know, I think that the whole man who knew too much uh, concerto, imagine the last one. You know, right. the assassination in the. 
theater was oh the opera house sequence is amazing beautiful and, and, all, <laughs> and I'm not saying old fashioned as a something to decry it's like a, like a Stanley Donnan or Hitchcock mm -hmm. choreography really beautiful you yeah. know is um did you hear the recent comments by, that Spielberg made about the superhero genre saying it's like cyclical like the western he, he thinks it'll it'll go away and it'll come back and it's just the nature well, of things I, I think that things rather than go away things ebb and flow yeah like the western's never gone yeah horror I mean for us that like, like I'm in horror I'm 50 and in my lifetime horror has been dead four or five times right. <laughs> and horror has been the hottest thing six or seven times right so it's ebb and flow I think everything is is ebbing and flowing and no matter what genre if a movie has purity and sincerity and power is going to uh, you know flow to the top you, you came close to getting uh, doing another comic book thing in terms of Justice League Dark mm -hmm. um, and, and I know we've talked about Thor was, was something that you almost did or flirted yeah. with for a time is there any impulse because I mean Thor Ragnarok is something you've worked yeah. with Tom that's yeah. out there that they're looking for a director is that something that you could imagine um, being interested in I, I'm actually gravitating to the weirder stuff man still I still mean, yeah. yeah I feel really I'm, I'm in a stage when uh, you know, if I was going to do pyrotechnics, I, they would need to be very intimately related to who I am or what I like. Or your own universe in, in Pac Rim, I guess. Possible. Right? Yeah, yeah. Pac Rim attracted me because we were going to do crazy stuff yeah. and attracts me if, we, if, we, if it gets green lit. But uh, I, feel, I feel like. like uh, Getting well, weird. Yeah, okay, yeah. good, good. I encourage it. <laughs> Is there an actor you're dying to work with and one in particular that jumps out at you? Do you have. You know, I, 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 having having just seen Revenant and having seen Wolf of Wall Street, I happen to just admire Leo. And you he'll know, go for it. He's uh... well, he, and, and and he has he's a, a big connoisseur of the weird and the kinky cinema. You know, right? We have an affinity for Todd Browning and Freaks. <laughs> All right, huge affinity. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's yeah. a he's a Freaks fan. He's a Freaks freak. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, good to know. Very big and and. Uh, you know, I've known his dad longer than I've known him. Yeah. Uh, but his dad uh, uh, used to be a, a, an underground publisher and very involved in underground. And all that history of comics, I can talk with Leo and, or his dad very easily with George um, about Crumb, Richard Corbin, uh, you know, Jack Jackson. Right. Yeah. I, I know he, he for a while he was developing like a Twilight Zone movie. I was always, always mm -hmm. intrigued by that mm -hmm. to see what Leo mm -hmm. would do with that. Would be interesting. Yeah, is is there um, you know, working with actors over over the years? Do you feel like that was something that took a while to to? Did you perfect a technique? Did Cronus versus Crimson Peak? Do you think you're working with on set differently? Well, yes, hopefully. Yes. I, mean, <laughs> I do. I do think. I do think you learn. I mean, I learned that brevity and and intelligence in the direction, not complexity. Yeah. You don't want to. You don't want to come out. Uh, to an actor in the middle of a shooting day with an intellectual concern. Right. You don't want to come and say, remember, this is the moment where the character was uh, is remembering when he was a child. I mean, you come in with an activity. It's where more a, practical. It's just, uh, yes. Yeah, it's, you are thinking of this. You're doing that. Yeah. And a verb. You know, a verb. And, and communicate it in... 10 words or less, 20 words if you must, but don't, don't go into, into a, co a conference with the actor. Yeah. Give him tools, give him trust or give her trust and, 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 and be with them. And, and the other thing that I find important is be next to the camera. Mm -hmm. Don't hide in don't, video village. Don't be don't, on yeah. video village. I yeah. mean, I, I, 
I really, unless it's a complex shot that doesn't allow me to be next to the, I'm, I try not to be in video real life. I'm with a little uh, handheld uh, monitor next yeah. to the camera. Well, what happens when an actor is delivering a performance in just a different key, like a totally different kind of key than you need? Like, do you uh, sort of accept it and sort of like, okay, we're going to explore this path? Or can, like at this point, do you feel like you can shift them towards your, what you have in your mind, or do you just sort well, of have to go with it? The trickiest thing is tone, you know? Like, like uh, if you're going to deliver a certain genre of dialogue, and the actor is making it earnest, it just sounds worse. Yeah. So sometimes you need to, to make it lighter or to assume, you know, when you're, when you're delivering a, a blade to line, the, the, the virus is spreading exponentially, <laughs> they will soon overrun the city, whatever it is, you want it to be almost pattern, you know, sure. banter. And, 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 and when they are delivering something, for example, in Crimson Peak, is, is sort of, a couple of notches overwrought into melodrama. Sure. You want to stay in that, and and the way you correct that, if I may suggest something, is you don't. It's like shooting in a, a shooting range. If you're not reaching the target, you don't take one step or one step back. You take five steps forward and say, try it this other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then five steps back. Not a slight adjustment. You say, no, you go, way you over. go. Let's try this, and you kind of break it. You say, try it this much different, or this much louder, or something. Not not little steps, bigger steps. Do you ever give a line line reading, or is that something? No, that... I've never done. I mean, I've never done it. Also with my accent, <laughs> it would need to be Treasure of Sierra Madre, you know. Have you ever had to fire an actor? Huh? Have you ever had to fire an actor? Mm, no, I don't think so. Okay. Well, maybe I conveniently forget. <laughs> Except for Ron Perlman on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Ron Perlman was going to be Tom Hiddleston. Right. <laughs> Who's the most underrated person on a set? Who doesn't get the credit they deserve that you are leaning on that like that oh, it makes or breaks a That's culture? easy. The worst job in a set is a focus puller. Yeah? Of course. It's just because if, if he does minutely job, off it's if, if his job is right ninety nine point nine percent of the time, nobody cares. <laughs> if his job is wrong one time, he's a complete uh, moron and you wanna kill him. You know, I think it's the top <laughs> it's also people think his metrics and his technique. Yeah, it's pure instinct. Yeah, it's pure instinct. It's a beautiful, beautiful craft. And I think it's the director's job to know what all these, what is at stake in all these little jobs, because uh, and that's what I, I'm very thankful that I did about a dozen movies and about twenty episodes of TV before directing, working in different capacities because. If you want to any day be in charge of a movie set, work on it. Yeah. Because then you know what the people working for you are feeling, you know? When you're on the set um, of this one or, or, or on Pack Rim and these sets are ginormous and it's mm -hmm. insane, are you, are, are you giddy just seeing what you've been able to kind of create and kind of like, this is all here because of me? <laughs> Not yeah. in an ego way, but like no, that. No, it's no, like yeah, it's a kid that, in a candy store, I would that happened, that happened the first time Rom walked in. As Hellboy, yeah, in full costume and makeup, I was like, you know, we've really, done half the job already. <laughs> I was super happy. I remember on Pacific Rim when we built the compods in a real uh, gimbal to shake them, yeah. and I got the first footage with the cranes going at them, and the, it was a very difficult, technically very difficult movie, and and I thought this is fantastic, yeah. you know, and and it happens on Crimson Peak when we walk into the house. Absolutely. I mean, that, uh, I I really wanted the house to be 
along with the wardrobe, to be an instrument of storytelling, to tell you who they are and sort of evidence their state of mind by showing the house. Sure. You know, and, and the moment we entered the house, I, I felt this is fantastic. You know? uh, going into slight spoiler territory, but there's there's a murder in this one that involves kind of like a, a bloody tear that is just a yeah. great uh, image. Is that something that, like, where did, where did that come from? Do you recall? Well, I, I thought it was important uh, to, to, to have a final moment for that character that would that would be emotional. I tried different things. I had lines that didn't work. Mm. I had a moment between them that didn't work. And I finally said, you know what, let's put the tear. Let's do the tear. Because we were congesting the eye uh, with blood. Yeah. And I said, what if we have a little overflow, you know? What, what's the, is, is, is there a scene in particular in Crimson Peak that is the, is the one that, that brings a huge grin to your face? Yeah, I mean, there's many. I mean, I honestly, this is my third favorite film I've done. And... But I can tell you, if I had to choose from the beauty, I would choose the waltz. The waltz scene in Crimson Peak is, I think, beautiful, gorgeous, yeah. and it, it kind of encapsulates a whole courtship in one single scene, and, and uh, Tom is holding a candle, and it really never went out. It really just stayed up. That's how good a dancer he is. I'm just glad you convinced him to wear the pants for it because his initial instinct wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked for the final product. The, the, the G-string was wrong. <laughs> but but, but, but uh, the other thing that I remember with, I mean, I love the murders, Yeah. but I, I, I think that the most sickening scene for me is when she's feeding, feeding Mia. Yeah. Uh, when Lucille is feeding Mia some porridge. It was a really intense scene and, and, and a very violent scene without anything happening. You know? um, it's, it's a truly great piece of work. I, I'm, I'm dying to see it again, and I, and I, and I will very soon. Um, thanks so much, as always, for stopping by, man. It's, it's, you're one of the best out there, and it's a pleasure, pleasure to talk to you. See you later, guys. Thanks, buddy. Hello, hi. Have you found yourself watching the film Aliens and wondering, what is Arcturian Poontang? Did you know that line was improvised by the actor Rico Ross? Or that the bus from Speed jumped over a real freeway gap with real terrified actors inside? Or maybe it didn't. <laughs> I don't know. But I do know this. I'm Matt Gorley. And if you listen to my podcast, I Was There Too, you wouldn't ask these questions because you would already know the answers. On each episode of I Was There Too, I talk to a different actor who had a small role in some of film and television's most iconic scenes. They share stories about improvising with Robin Williams, dancing with Michael Jackson, getting screamed at by Samuel L. Jackson, and all Jackson-related stories. In clips like these... I gotta rewrite at midnight one of those Deadwood monologues yeah. that's like a paragraph and a half long in backward Shakespeare and the AD called me up and said David wants to shoot this first thing in the morning. So we're talking, you know, 5.30 a.m. and right now it's midnight. Like, okay, do I not sleep and hope that I'm able to perform this in the morning? Or are we going to get there in the morning and we're going to do it and David is going to say, you know, let me rewrite it again and I should just blow it off and sleep. What I ended up doing was I began crying. <laughs> For more like that, listen to I Was There Too Today on wolfpop.com or the Howl app or the podcast app of your choice. It's America. I'll see you all there in my mind's eye. Pop. 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 Pop.
This has been a Wolf Pop production. Executive produced by Paul Shear, Adam Sachs, Chris Bannon, and Matt Gorley. For more information and content, visit wolfpop.com.